0: Hello, and welcome to episode four of We Made a Beer, the podcast in which we, two beer novices, find out about beer by brewing our own, drinking some really interesting beer, and chatting to some folks who really know their stuff. This week, Nigel Owen, owner of Mother Kelly's, tells us what beers we might be missing out on in the UK because we don't want to splash out.
1: There's some great beer coming out of Italy, but it's just really expensive. So we generally won't get it in because we know it'll hang rounds, or we just won't sell it.
2: We talk beery holiday destinations with beer writer Pete Brown.
3: And people think that Belgium's a boring country. I I suspect that this idea that Belgium is boring is a practical joke by the Belgians (laughs) to to wind everybody else up, because they have the most interesting beer in the the world.
0: And the decision between making a straight wheat beer or a whipped beer causes a ruckus in the We Made a Beer camp.
4: Coriander and whip beer is coriander seed as opposed yeah. to like the herb. So I know that some people are genetically disposed to hate coriander, which you probably are. Some people, it <laughs> m- means it tastes like soap, right?
2: Coriander seed is very different. I too. find it just ruins everything. <laughs> I mean, obviously you're wrong.
4: But, um. <laughs> <laughs> I also
0: believe that she's wrong.
2: <laughs> if you're new to We Made A Beer and you're just joining us at episode four, well done you, keep listening. But if you're keen to learn how beer is made, you may want to consider going back to episode one and joining us at the start of our journey. So
0: far in this series, we've made an IPA, a lager and a porter. But why stop there? This week, we're taking a leaf out of Belgium's book and are having a go at making a wheat beer. We'll also be learning which UK brewers are taking their influences from overseas and finding out which overseas brewers we should be looking out for here in the UK. We'll also get insight into how beer from the other side of the world reaches our pubs and bars fresh and clean. Last week, we had our first major success story, a porter that passed the U-Brew taste test. If you missed the reaction, here it is again.
5: It's kind of funny because it starts smooth and then it finishes tangy, but I like it. It's good. I think this might even improve further with age. For your third beer ever, this is pretty damn good. Yeah,
2: like it. So, pretty chuffed with that success, and now it's on to one of our favourites, the wheat beer. Now, we're both huge fans of wheat beer, much to the annoyance of our guts, but
0: as with most beers prior to this podcast, we may drink loads of it, but we have no idea what it is, how it's made, or what we should really be tasting. However, we did a little homework and came across two major styles of wheat beer that we considered making, the traditional and the whip beer.
2: To help us decide which to make and to teach us a bit more about what wheat beer actually is, in steps Tash. Tash is a brewing assistant at Ubrew and has the less than glamorous task of being our brewing mentor. She explained that wheat beers were a movement away from something called the German purity law, also known by the fun-to-pronounce name, the Reinheitsgebot. Here's Tash to explain more.
4: Initially, wheat beer broke the rules of the the purity law, the Reinheitsgebot. Um, uh, Barley was the only grain that was allowed to be used to make beer, um, along with uh, hops and water, those three ingredients, were the only things that were allowed. And that was largely to preserve wheat for use by bakers. So with issues of scarcity, um, wheat was needed to make bread for bakers, and so barley was was reserved for beer. Um, Later, the law was loosened a little bit, to allow use of wheat, um, it was also loosened uh, to allow use of yeast um, once the fermentable power of yeast was realized. Um, so the law's undergone an, a number of revisions, but essentially it's remained. F- fairly similar um for for several hundred years
0: Where does, like the, the tradition for adding
4: wheat into beer kind of come from i think it was born out of necessity so um before water was safe to, safe to drink people were drinking beer um beer was rooted in enormous quantities just for con- daily consumption and so people used what was available to them whether it was barley whether it was wheat that's how the wheat beer came about
0: and what does wheat kind of add to the beer in terms of flavors in terms of like the texture and stuff so it gives that
4: um, lots of haze and lots of mouthfeel because it's a, there's a lot of um, different types of starches and proteins in the wheat, essentially, compared to barley. And so it, it gives those um, those like rich, warm um, banana bubblegum, those phenols that come from the um, interaction of the proteins in the yeast. What should we do with our wheat beer? From what you guys have said, you, you want to stick with the European style of wheat beer? Whether you want to do something with coriander and orange, like a wit beer, or whether you want to stick to a traditional heifer bison, yeasty, yeasty wheat. <laughs>
2: I have a bit of an unnatural hatred for coriander, oh, okay. however I don't taste it actually when I have a beer. Yeah, we, had
0: a, we had a whit beer the other day and it didn't taste anything like coriander.
2: Coriander
4: and Whip beer is coriander seed as opposed yeah. to like the herb, so I know that some people are genetically disposed to hate coriander, which you probably are, some people means it tastes like soap, right? Coriander seed is very different. Too. I find it just ruins everything. <laughs> I mean obviously you're wrong, but um... <laughs> I also believe that she's wrong. Um, what you also can do is uh, we can substitute the coriander for something else, um, Interesting, or we can just go a traditional route.
2: Well, I think if we're going to say we're going to do a wheat beer, we've got to do a hardcore wheat beer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, once we'd decided on a traditional wheat beer with absolutely no trace of coriander, seed or otherwise, apologies, <laughs> <laughs> we left Tash in Yibrew and headed home to do our first ever bit of recipe development. Up until now, Yubu have
0: created our recipes either for us or with us and helped us to brew. This time, though, it's all on us though
2: Tash will be keeping a watchful eye and making sure we don't blow anything up. For it to be classed as a wheat beer, it needs to have at least 50% wheat malt in the malt bill. And we wanted that nice, strong, yeasty, wheaty flavour, so we went all out with 63% wheat. We read loads of different homebrew recipes and tasting notes, and in the end, we took influence from a handy little homebrew guidebook we bought ourselves. If you want to check out the exact recipe we used, you can visit our website, wemadeabeer.co.uk. There's lots of
0: fancy things you can do when making a wheat beer, but as rookies, we stuck with a simple brew, which was technically kind of similar to the IPA in Episode 1, mindless of complex hop additions. So, with our Belgian inspired wheat beer in the fermenter, we went off and had a little Skype chat with beer writer Pete Brown, one of the world's best travelled beer drinkers. <laughs>
3: My name's Pete Brown. I write books about beer and cider and pubs and why they're important, and I'm lucky enough to make my living from it.
2: You've written a book called Three Sheets to the Wind, One Man's Quest for the Meaning of Beer, and on the back of it it says you went on the biggest pub crawl ever, drinking in more than 300 bars in 27 towns in 13 different countries on four different continents. Nice. So the big yeah. question is, why did you decide to do that?
3: This was around 2003, 2004. The new licensing act was just coming in in Britain. And this is when the newspapers, the tabloids got really hysterical about binge Britain and how we were all going to drink ourselves to death. And I was in the Czech Republic, which has the highest per capita beer consumption in the world. And I was talking to them about uh, drunken violence. And they said... Uh, yeah, it's quite funny coming and watching the English beat each other up in the streets. And I said, well, you drink way more than we do. Don't you have fights a lot as well? And they said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you drink a lot more than we do. And they said, yes. I said, so aren't you fighting all the time as well? And they said are you trying to suggest there's a link between consuming alcohol and violence? And I said, yeah. They said, no, 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 you English fight because you're a violent race. It's not, nothing to do with the beer. And so I thought, that's really interesting. It's a very different culture. Maybe our sort of binge Britain problem is, is culturally specific rather than to do with alcohol. And I just started to think about going to different countries that are famous drinkers uh, and seeing how the drinking culture was, the way that people drank and how they drank and who they drank with and where they drank. And along the way, that's when I developed a real love and appreciation of, of the beers themselves. I was I was fairly ignorant before I started that book, but along the way, I tasted some of the best beers in the world, and so my interest kind of spread from there.
0: Fantastic! What did it like kind of lead you to find in terms of uh, the beer drinking culture in uh, in different places?
3: Where, wherever I went, there was um, there were different styles of beer, there were different sizes. You, you went from Spain, where you drink a tiny little cana. Uh, which is like a 250ml glass of beer Mm. or a 100ml glass of beer sometimes, through to Germany where you drink it by the litre. Different styles, different styles of pub and bar and that kind of thing. But every single place I went, the beer moment was the same. It was always the meeting between friends when you want to kind of get rid of any sort of formality. The beer moment is this special moment where we're just kind of democratic and we get together and we relax. And that happened absolutely everywhere I went.
2: So I wondered, of the 300 bars in the 27 towns, where was the best?
3: Ooh, I didn't have a specific best bar, but I did have a favourite drinking place, and, and that was Madrid. I just loved the culture around it there. We were out, I think, for 12 hours, going from bar to bar, And didn't get drunk, because it's just kind of, you don't when you're there. We got home at 2am and I think the only drunk people we saw were an English hen night. Um, (laughs) But everybody else was kind of drinking constantly and not getting drunk. And just the atmosphere was so nice. And this lovely little thing of kind of crawling from one bar to the next and having little bits of tapas uh, wherever you went, I, I absolutely loved it.
2: Nice we're talking more about beer than we are about the atmospheres and sometimes when you walk into those amazing tap rooms in the UK and they've got like beyond 30 different beers available it's quite sort of intimidating so I wondered if you could give me a little breakdown of what countries we're probably most likely to see and perhaps some flavour profiles that you'd associate with those countries.
3: Yeah I mean it's quite interesting the the thing at the moment is we're being, we're being led by America. The, the craft beer revolution in America has set this template that's going all around the world now. And American craft beer really goes back to 1979 when they managed to get round to legalising homebrew, which had been banned during Prohibition in the 1920s. When they lifted Prohibition, they forgot to lift the ban on home brewing, And it took them until 1979 to do that. And so you've got all these home brewers quickly getting better and moving out of their garages and into small microbreweries. And they've really kind of built up both kind of really good marketing and making absolutely amazing beers. And the thing that's behind them is the is the American hops. Uh, so they're making strong, very hoppy beers. If you plant hops in different parts of the world, you get different flavor profiles. And just like with say a California Chardonnay versus a, a French Chardonnay, over there things grow bigger, it's hotter, and uh, so you get more concentrated flavors. So an American Hoppy beer will, be, will have really vivid notes of kind of citrus, pine, resin, um, tropical fruit, citrus fruit. And it's just extraordinary when you see people taste those beers for the first time. Their eyes light up. They go, oh my God, I never thought beer could be like this before. And, it, and it's the Hoppy American Pale Ales and IPAs that are definitely turning people on to craft beer.
2: So imagine I've got this unlimited budget and I can go anywhere in the world. Where should I go on my beer trip adventure of the whole world?
3: I think the place to start, it's one of the easiest places, is to go to Belgium. It is utterly, utterly awesome. I've just fallen in love again with Belgian beer for about the fourth time, <laughs> and people think that Belgium's a boring country. I, I suspect that this idea that Belgium is boring is a practical joke by the Belgians <laughs> to, to wind everybody else up, because they have the most interesting beer in the, in the world. And and they're classics. They've been brewing it for kind of 100, 200 years, some of these kind of Trappist brews and, and Abbey beers and stuff. The, the, the monks that brew the Trappist ales stick to kind of the same procedures and the same sort of principles, so sort of decade after decade. And and they're, they're unlike any beers you've ever tasted before, kind of strong, rich, warm, uh, spicy, funky sometimes. <laughs> um, the Cantillon Brewery in Brussels is is kind of, one of the first big, important beer experiences any, anyone's got to have, I think. Uh, you go there, they've got this ancient stuff. The beer's fermented naturally with yeast from the air. Um, and then they store it in barrels and age it for three years and then blend old beers and new beers. Wow. Um, and they're quite sour. But they can go from sour to dry to spicy to sort of farmyardy. And they're just, they're, so for some people, they're, in a, they're an acquired taste. Mm. But... The complexity of them and the balance of them is just wonderful. They're easily sophisticated as the best wines and um, they're just such good beers. They're absolutely (laughs) amazing. So that would be about my definite first stop.
0: We started our our kind of beer journey by a trip that we went on to Belgium last year. Unfortunately, we didn't go to that particular brew, which I'm gutted about now. (laughs) Yeah, sounds like we missed out where
2: else should we go
3: i've got two more essential destinations in europe one is um czech republic going Mm. to prague i've just got back from prague uh there's a beer festival there the best lager in the world it's all about drinkability and balance and and quality and smoothness and then bamberg in germany which Mm. i visited for the first time last november where there's this kind of beautiful take on the british pub i mean it's a german pub but it's quite similar but, but just a bit different and these amazing smoked beers that they do there if I could go anywhere else on your unlimited budget, I would head mm-hmm. straight to Portland, Oregon. I, I just think that's such a wonderful place. What
0: kind of styles of beer are they making in Portland?
3: So, so that Portland's like the... It's become the sort of spiritual home of the American craft beer movement. Mm. And if I said what they were making, I'd, I'd be wrong, because every time I go back, they, they've sort of moved on and developed a bit more. Mm-hmm. They're doing wood-aged things now. They're, they're aging things in wine barrels and getting sort of whiny characters into, into beers. And with the hops, instead of just... Um, putting more and more hops in now they're blending hops in a really subtle and sophisticated way so you're getting these quite complex bouquets coming off off some of the beers over there now i think 60 percent of the beer drunk in portland now is craft beer and people say you know craft beer is always going to be a niche it's not it's not a mainstream proposition, and maybe Portland's is just weird. But uh, <laughs> but craft it, it is. It is craft beer central. It's fantastic.
2: I've heard that um Japan are sort of doing really interesting things at the moment. Do you know much about that?
3: I had an amazing experience when I went to Japan, where I went to the hotel that's in Lost in Translation, and I ordered a local craft beer made on an island in Tokyo Harbor, and they brought it on a tray with uh, a bowl of the malts that the beer had been brewed with and asked me to taste the malt and then taste the beer in terms of kind of service and presentation it was absolutely amazing but yeah they're they're sort of um, again started by copying the American style and I think they're getting some nice interesting stuff of their own now Hitachino Nest is is a great brand to look out for from Japan.
2: Are there any UK breweries who are brewing beer that's really heavily influenced by any of those countries or any countries that you might not have mentioned?
3: I think one of the most interesting brewers at the moment is uh, Brewed by Numbers they've really got into the Belgian style of things. So they make Saisons, which are quite spicy, and we will often have the addition of fruit or spices to them as well. There's a lot of people kind of trying to ape that Belgian style and just doing it very crudely. Mm. They remind me of when I first started making... Curries, and <laughs> I've just put way more chili powder in than the recipe suggested, <laughs> thinking that I was making a better curry. And you're not, you know. You you need to understand the, the balance of the different spices and stuff. And brewed by numbers really get the styles that they're working with. They understand the styles pro- properly, and so they'll be interesting. They'll be quite funky and weird, but they're always balanced. Yeah. Uh, they're always kind of. I think they're a very grown-up brewery. And they're brewing new stuff all the time, so I'm always keen to see what they're doing.
0: Brilliant. Anyone else in the UK?
3: My uh, my old favourite is Thornbridge. They were one of the first craft brewers to start out in 2005. And that's when I was just doing all my travels. Uh, I got back from Three Sheets to the Wind, all my travel I was doing for that. And I remember tasting a Thornbridge beer in a, in a pub, never having heard of them. And it had these flavours of American hops in it. And I just went wild and was like, oh my God, these are those beers <laughs> I've been telling you about. This is, these are the flavours. Yeah. And, uh, and they've carried on um, pushing and innovating. And they've just done a beer called Serpent, which is a collaboration with Brooklyn Brewery in the, in the United States. They made a really strong beer and they aged it on the leaves, basically the pulp from, from cider barrels. And the beer's been aging in wooden barrels for, for at least two years, and it's just been launched. And that's like nothing else you've ever tasted before. Wow. So they, they make some really, really special things. My other favourites, you know, I'll people like, like Magic Rock, hmm. they're, they're old friends. Um, uh, Tiny Rebel down in Wales are just fantastic. Um, but everywhere you go now in the UK there's, there's brewers doing really interesting stuff
0: I was wondering if when you've been on your travels you've seen any, uh, any kind of craft brewers elsewhere outside of the UK that are taking on influence from stuff like porters and things that are uh, pretty British in their style
3: yeah, I mean, if if you go back far enough, the whole thing is influenced by British styles. So the American craft brewers were influenced by by British real ale. G- Goose Island, which which was one of the early big craft brewers, big craft beers to get into this country, they started off trying to make a version of London Pride. Oh, really? <laughs> and they and they failed. They failed miserably, but they created something wonderful instead by accident you know so so the british influence goes right right through that real ale is kind of the british speciality and that doesn't take off anywhere else because it's kind of difficult to do i judge the brussels beer challenge every for the last couple of years and what's been really interesting there is it's an international competition and brewers in brazil are brewing british best bitter porter stouts and winning medals for them. Mm. So Brazil is my sort of kind of high on my list to visit again soon because there just seems to be some really interesting stuff happening there.
2: Where have you been recently?
3: My my highlight recently was uh, Australia. I had an absolutely wonderful trip down there. So I'm working on this new book called uh, What Are You Drinking? It's about the ingredients of beer. And... um And an Australian brewer called Stone and Wood said, we'll fly you over to Australia so you can look at the hop harvest in Tasmania, which was just fantastic.
0: That's brilliant. And
3: Mm. they're brewing these really nice beers that are very aromatic, but not too bitter and not too thick. And when you're sitting in 35 degrees on Byron Beach watching (laughs) the surfers, it's just just absolutely perfect beer.
2: Any chance of those getting imported to the UK anytime soon? They've,
3: They've just appointed a UK sales rep, actually. Exciting. So look out for Stone and Wood Pacific Ale
2: great stuff from pete there a really knowledgeable guy and i'm super jealous of that trip he went on it sounds amazing really looking forward to the new book he was on about as well which looks in detail at the four main ingredients of beer sounds right up our street hmm yeast if you're not able to live the life of jet-setting pete and want to explore the foreign beer industry from the comfort of the uk and happen to live in london then our next guest is the chap you need to talk to Nigel Owen owns loads of London's greatest beer haunts,
0: including Mother Kelly's Bottle Shop and Tap Room in Bethnal Green. If you've never been to Mother Kelly's, you're missing out. With 23 taps and six massive fridges bulging at the seams with pretty much every style of beer you can imagine from all over the world, and an ever changing menu, it's a real treat for beer fans. We caught up with Nigel in the Mother Kelly's Beer Garden to talk about the beers he stocks. <laughs>
1: My name is Nigel Owen. I am the owner of Mother Kelly's and Barley Pop, which is a group of pubs. So we've got uh, Queen's Head in King's Cross, Acton Street, Simon the Tanner down in Borough, and then Mother Kelly's in Bethlehem Green and Mother Kelly's Bottles Shop in Homerson. And we're just about to open Mother Kelly's Botshop Shop in Stoke Newton.
2: So it's all going pretty well, actually.
1: It could be going worse, but it could, could also be going better.
2: So can you talk us through how you came to be...
1: By the Kelly's man. So I studied music, music technology um, at university, but I bartended as well when I was in uni to pay my bills. Uh, then I finished uni and found out it's really hard to get a job in that, so I carried on bartending. Then I moved to London, uh, worked for a match bar group, then managed various places. Then I ended up working at the Members Bar above the Ivy. Um, Very. First name turns to Stephen Fry. Love that. <laughs> almost almost did not quit because of that. Um, and then one night I was in the restaurant bar upstairs. I was making a coffee for this American lady who wanted a dry cappuccino. Like, it's literally the wankiest coffee ever. They wanted a dry cappuccino with one shot decaf coffee and one shot normal coffee. And she sent mm-hmm. it back eight times because <laughs> it was always too wet or too dry or too strong or too weak. I made it eight times. Then I went home that night, had a little ponder. But right, I never want to be in a position where I need to pander to someone that's clearly just an idiot ever again. The only way I'm going to do that is if I go and work for myself. So I quit the next day and then went, got a pub six months later. And that was six and a bit years ago. I
2: feel a bit inspired. Yeah, we do. We just went inside to grab a drink. And there is so, so, so much choice. Um, How much, how many different beers have you got in there? Oh,
1: God, I think the last stock take was, I think I had something like 170 different lines. So it's a lot of different lines. Obviously, predominantly bottles, but we do have a very changing menu. So, kind of what's it Friday? So it's Friday night tonight. So I'd imagine we'll have eight, nine, maybe ten changes for tomorrow. So that menu gets changed every day.
2: And roughly, how many of those beers do you think are from overseas?
1: I would say we look at probably 40%, maybe 50% from Europe and the States and overseas generally. But it can, you know, it can vary. Sometimes we can have an awful lot more because we we've also got our own distribution company as well.
0: How does the import and distribution side of it work with the
1: range like yours? Um, well, I think the key is, so that why we set the import company up is there's within the import sector within London, there's kind of generally quite a bit of incompetence, but that's a story for a different day. And it just gives us access to a lot more beer. So we're in charge of importing it. We know that we're getting it fresh. So that's kind of the rationale behind that, to know that we're buying a pallet or a couple of pallets of beer from that brewery. We know how long it's been traveling for. We know how long it's, well, it's not spent any time in a warehouse. So we're completely in control of that, which I think is really important, especially when it comes from beer that way you're getting from elsewhere, whether Europe, especially the States. You know, it's really key, I think anyway, that you know where it's been every step of that journey. And you know when you say, oh, we've imported it via um, refrigerated container, that it actually has been imported via a refrigerated container so we we know that and we're in charge of all that facts
2: Have you noticed any consumer trends like is imported beer more popular now
1: yeah it's interesting i would say from our point of view we're seeing slightly more sales in the american stuff that's coming over because i think there's a lot more people going to the states and it's a lot more um easy accessible over there you know you go to a little corner shop and have an amazing range of beer so we're seeing that there's definitely more people definitely looking out for the american stuff but on the flip side of that, I think there's a difficulty with the American stuff getting it fresh. Mm-hmm. And it can be super expensive as well.
2: What about like the more European beers? Because there's a bit of a boom at the moment in London with craft. So is that maybe eking into what would normally be your import like, uh, beer drinking? Well, or is it well, actually think, having a flip side effect?
1: I think you know it's getting more people interested in drinking good beer, which I think is really key. But the thing with... There might be a increase in breweries and increase in kind of smaller microbreweries or craft is a word I don't want to use but craft beer for a lack of a better term but the problem with that is there might be a rise in it It doesn't mean it's any good and I think that's really important I think the consumers also after maybe a couple of years of that seeing that increase the consumers I think have got wise to what is good and what's bad Um, so I don't think that in a sense is eating into any kind of European beer sales I think if anything it's just increasing the quality of what people want to drink. Thus, that will increase the quality of you know, the, what people want to drink in terms of European beer as well. I would just say some of the European beer can be really expensive as well. So in terms of like the Italian stuff, it's really good. There's some great beer coming out of Italy, but it's just really expensive. So we generally won't get it in because we know it'll hang rounds, or we just won't sell it. The same with Spain as well. Apart from one or two breweries, we don't really deal with that much Spanish stuff, just because it's really expensive and there's no point having it in for the sake of just having it and it not selling. We want the beer to be sold, we want it to be fresh, we want the consumers to have the best experience with that beer that they can.
0: Say price wasn't a factor um, and consumers didn't mind and they would pay whatever. Uh, Who's doing the best beer in the world at the moment? Who are you most excited about in terms of countries?
1: Um, So, who's doing the best beer in the world? Right, so I was actually in California last week, I was lucky enough to wander over there for a little holiday. I was at the Rare Barrel in Berkeley, so just up from San Francisco, um, in that tap room, great brewery, great beer, doing predominantly sour stuff. Really, really like that. Great guys as well. The brewery, obviously, up from San Diego as well, and Lost Abbey. They're probably my three favourite breweries, I think, in terms of what they do, the style of the beer, the branding, and most importantly, the beer itself. Um, so I'm a big fan of Lowe's Free, but then again, you know, I really like what Five Points are doing up the road, they're just making really good, solid, honest beer. Same with Pressure Drop as well, you know, they're making really good, really solid beer, and you know, we've known the guys since the beginning, so, it's a bit of a tough one really. Those kind of free American stuff is the type of beer that I like. And I find drinking their beer can be quite, for me personally, a little bit inspiring. Actually, there's there's some good stuff out there. How do we get this stuff? But then some local breweries just doing some really good stuff that are just doing it really honestly and to the best of their ability.
2: So you mentioned a few breweries there that are doing quite interesting things yep. with beer. And you mentioned sour beer as yep. well. So what's the biggest driver of sales? Are people after the weird stuff? Are they after their solid staples? Are they after the <laughs> local, the label? What is it that's no, I, drawing people to beer?
1: I think that's... Yeah, you know, what's drawing people to beer is that we've got a culture of drinking beer. And the thing that's changed is that people are looking to drink better beer and spend more money drinking less beer, but they just want to drink better. And I think we're seeing that in not just drink, we're seeing that in food as well. And not just beer, wine, spirits, people are after a better experience where I feel they're getting more value for money. But in terms of what drives people to drink what they're drinking, you know, it might be like a really taste like Gamma Ray after they've just finished work like on a friday night or it could be like a tuesday where they just might want to come in for one beer and just want something really interesting and they might go for some random sour beer that's we've imported from the states or they might go for an imperial ipa or some stags or whatever Mm -hmm. what we want to take away and why the way we've done our done the menu Mm -hmm. is that we don't have to be driven by branding or Mm -hmm. font badges or whatever Mm -hmm. so it's a number and look at the menu and go oh you know it sounds like i'd like that Mm -hmm. i'll give it a go which is what we want. And you know, we get some people that will just go for a pale ale because they like, recognise the phrase. And i you will know, say to the guys, we want to make sure we're really accessible. That's the key to what we're doing is accessibility. If you want to come in for a beer, just come in for a beer. You know, there's just, people just need to come in and try stuff and find what they like. And we actually find a lot of people that don't necessarily like beer will actually prefer the sour stuffs.
2: I think Mother Kelly's is doing something that's quite interesting because we've been to a lot of railway arches and a lot of tap rooms to make this and um, there's quite often a really heavy gender divide, like it's always really male skewed, whereas Mother Kelly's. Well do you because know,
1: it's like, I w- we're not a beer bar. I don't even look at ourselves at what we do, we're just a good place to come for a bit more than anything else, and that just stocks really good beer, that's it, and, you know, we're not interested in being anyone else, we should be really accessible because that's what bars should be. That's what pubs should be. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I've been to quite a few places and it's very male heavy. And, you know, I'm not interested in that at all. Like, it's just just not interesting. It's quite boring. It's really outdated. And I think it's almost a sign of where within the industry, there's a severe lack of any form of innovation or even foresight to a degree, where actually we need to open this up. We should be really accessible to a wide range of people because they pay the bills in the end of the day. The idea behind Mother Kelly's was making sure that we're serving great beer, being a nice place to come for a bit, but also trying to be innovative within the industry, whether it be the furniture, the communal tables, you know, the unisex toilets, the the PDQ system we use. We wanted to actually kind of push that envelope a little bit, and I think we did. You know, and what we do next, I also want to push that envelope a little bit, because I think we as an industry need to keep pushing forward, and that's how we make sure that we can still carry on doing what we're doing. We're still encouraging people to come and spend money with us and have beer. But also we're to a degree trying to encourage a younger generation to come and work in hospitality as well. But in the two years since we've kind of done that, I can't really see anywhere else within the industry that's kind of trying to be innovative or trying to push it forward or try to do something different to be honest. And I think it's a shame for the consumer and I think it's a shame for the industry as well. And I think that's really important that kind of just trying to push it forwards. It's really important.
2: So do you think that change will come? I
1: really hope it comes, because that's how we're going to engage with more people. You know, everyone's on about pubs closing. Um, the pubs that close are shit pubs that are probably carpeted and are smelly and haven't got a very interesting range of what to drink. And they're, so their rights are closed, but on the flip side of that, we need to make sure the places that aren't like that are pushing it forward and, so, and are making it interesting and trying to engage people on many different levels.
2: So talking about making it interesting, how do you stock what you stock? Is there some sort of methodology in it? Do you just go, oh, that's an interesting looking bottle, that'll Um, sell well?
1: What we say to the guys is, you know, it's not about what we can get our hands on, it's about what we think is good and how do we get our hands on it, hence the distribution company. So it's opened up a lot of avenues to us just getting what we want. That's it, we just stock beer that we think is good, there's no more to it really. And we just try and stock a range to make sure it's really accessible again, so if someone's a bottle of lager, that's fine. You know, it's got that perceived notion of being boring. But you know, you drink any of the Cloudwater lagers that they released a couple of months ago and you tell me that they're boring in any way, shape or form, and you'll be wrong. They're super tasty. And I think the one thing we will see probably in this year, going on to early next year, is a rise of more breweries doing really good, really interesting lagers. Which I'm looking forward to because it's, especially over summer, like Chris might Lager is really good.
0: I know your menu's changing all the time, yeah. but I don't know if there are some that kind of stick on the menu just because they are really popular beers.
1: The kind of, we always have kind of five points um, on the pale ale and same with Fresh Drop as well. Pale Fire is pretty much always on because they're both really tasty. And, you know, I think they're both really tasty, really accessible pale ales, but flavour-wise, quite different, both of them. Um, And we make sure we kind of have them on all the time. So even if they're not comfortable with the rest of the menu, they know that they can come in and just try that um, and have that, and it'll be what they know and what they expect. Mm -hmm.
2: So from what they know and what they expect, what's maybe the weirdest beer that you've ever stocked in Mother Kelly's?
1: Um, Well, even we've got the founder's... Mango Magnificent The mango beer I can't remember what it's called on I think at the moment actually it's on yeah and that's a chilli mango beer it's really tasty and really interesting and I think that's probably up there of one of the weirdest things we've got on
2: Big thanks to Nigel for taking time out on a busy Friday night to sit down and have a chat with us he was a great guy and quite an inspiration story too really we actually interviewed Nigel in a pre-Brexit world With the economy in a pretty unstable place right now, it will be interesting to see what happens to the price of imported and domestic beers. Definitely a hot topic in beer world. At the beginning of this episode, we started brewing up our wheat beer. Last week, we had our first
0: successful brew, with a drinkable porter that just about passed the rigorous U-Brew taste test. It was slightly criticised for not having an adventurous flavour profile, but we decided we wanted to tackle the basics before we got too cocky. Let's see how our wheat beer fared in comparison.
5: Okay, so first impressions, it smells and looks like a really well-brewed classical wheat beer. Um, so I'm expecting it to taste like one. Yeah, it tastes like one too, yeah. <laughs> so that's good. You you're so really...
2: concise with your feedback, I love yeah, it.
5: <laughs> you did a really good job. This is really clean, uh, very much kind of got those spicy, wheezy flavours that you're looking for. But it's not overpowering, and literally it tastes like something you would buy in a shop that was labelled a wheat beer. Super, that's what we were aiming for. This is your most well-brewed beer. Um, yeah, it's just really well-brewed.
3: Like Wolf said, if um, you bought that in a pub, you'd be, be well It It's
1: great that you've, that you've developed this recipe. So for you guys, what's exciting about this one, this is your fourth beer. Already working with recipe development, and yeah, you've done really, really well.
2: Would this pass the You Brew Taste Test?
3: I think we, around September, Oktoberfest, would be on our shelves.
5: Yeah, I mean, I'm going to say again, it's really well brewed and everything, but a bit like the porter. my only criticism is that it's a bit too normal. Um, So if I were you, I would re-brew this, but add some kind of twist. And for this, I would just dry hop the living hell out of it (laughs) and make it an India Pale Wheat. (laughs)
0: Thanks, Wolf. He really does like the oddball brews. Maybe if we do a series two, we'll try and tackle the India
2: Pale Wheat. So, two successes have now come from this podcast, and the You Brew chaps seem genuinely very impressed with our wheat beer, which is a great feeling. Next week, the podcast gets a little bit funky as we attempt to make an infused beer. We're also super excited to be chatting to Beavertown's head brewer, Jen Merrick, about making quirky beer that people love. We also want to take a look at the changing face of the beer consumer and producer, so she'll be featuring alongside the lovely folks from There's a Beer for That, a campaign that sets out to encourage people to try new beer. Also, in exciting news, our friends at Ubrew are offering We Made a Beer podcast listeners 20% off brew courses with the offer code Ubrew20. If you like this podcast, please
0: do subscribe. You can also tweet your thoughts to us at We Made a Beer or follow us on Instagram, also at We Made a Beer. Thanks for listening. Bye bye.
5: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich.